0: So it's great to see all of you this morning. Um, I remember years ago I was listening to um, a pastor teaching pastors. So he was talking to pastors about pastoring and uh, teaching the Bible. And one of the things he said stood out to me. And he said, There's this dilemma that the pastor faces every time he teaches. So typically in the Christian tradition, that's Sunday morning. Could be other days as well. But typically on a Sunday morning, there's always this, this weird tension and kind of a heaviness. And he described it as due to the fact that whenever you teach God's Word, you're always teaching something higher than yourself. It's a higher standard than you're presently at. And he said what that did in his personal walk is it, it would elicit initially feelings of guilt. Because here I am, I'm coming to teach this standard standard in this way and these ideas and these truths and i haven't attained them and some people feel and he shared how he felt that initially he thought that's what hypocrisy is that hypocrisy is anytime you preach a standard and then you 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 can't live up to it and he said that was one of the devil's greatest tactics of getting at him in his life what he learned later is it would actually be a horrible tragedy for a Christian and a Christian minister to ever get up and preach a standard that was as low as where they were. That, that, that's actually horrible. And merely doing that for the sake of not being what some people perceive as hypocritical is actually, is actually foolish, and it's uh, the, way, the way devil heaps uh, condemnation on people. So he said one of the things you have to learn to live with, and I think this applies to Christians, but certainly uh, to me this morning, and that is that I'm going to preach to you a standard that is higher than myself. So I just want you to know as I share this text that I have not attained. That this isn't something where, oh, I've mastered it. Oh, hey, I've got, I've got all the principles on how to be, you know, do it the way I do it because I think I do it perfect, and here you go. Honestly, God forbid I ever do that, but I certainly won't do it this morning because what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is Christian leadership. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. So, you, so you can imagine there's that abiding wrestling with the fact this is God's Word, it's higher than me. And then I'm going to talk about leadership and specifically pastoral ministry. I'm going to apply that to all of you because you all lead or pastor somebody in some respect, whether that's personal, professional, political, whatever it is. You're some kind of leader. You're some kind of pastor to somebody. So I want to apply those truths. Um, but the primary focus Peter has is on pastoral leadership in the local church. So it's a standard that's it's higher than me. It's one I aspire to, and I think I'm moving in the right direction by God's grace, but I don't want anyone to think that I'm standing here saying, oh, I've attained. Um, that's not the case, nor is it hypocrisy if I confess with Scripture that Jesus is a higher standard than me. I, I hope that goes without saying. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll also have the passage up on the screen behind me. And please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. 1 Peter 5, 1-5. through five. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd, the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray for Your help this morning. We pray you would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who is able to lead us and guide us into all truth, Jesus said. And so we pray you would guide us in the truths of these verses, of this set of Scripture. Because in so doing, we believe that we are seeing your heart for us. Your will for us, your way for us. Lord, I pray you would help us to engage and assess in what way we are serving as leaders in the lives of anyone else, whether we have that title or not. Because if we profess to follow you, we are accountable to you for how we live our lives. And the standard is not somebody else, whatever they might say, good or bad. You are the standard. And what You say about us at the end of our lives, the day we stand before You on the Day of Judgment, it is that opinion, that verdict that matters. So help us to hear Your voice, to love Christ's appearing, and I pray You'd create in us a desire to follow Jesus as our Chief Shepherd. We pray this in His name. Amen. Alright, so first Peter five, one through five. As I said, on the surface this is primarily about pastoral leadership. So if this were just a Bible college class or, or a lecture. Um, I would just get more into some of the details of the Greek, and I could talk about ecclesiology and the doctrine of the church and the history of the church. There's been all kinds of dispute. Is an elder the same thing? as a bishop Is the same thing? Uh, as a pastor, are those different offices? How do they relate? Various churches have done it that way for over a thousand years. So we could go into all kinds of things like that. But I believe that here today, speaking to you, that it's no accident that you're here, that it's by divine appointment. I don't believe there's accidents in life. I believe we are all here by the will of God, even if it took some coffee and the nudging of a spouse or something like that. I believe that also is within the will of God. And so, speaking to you, knowing that most of you are not presently pastors, knowing that most of you probably aren't called to be pastors, in the church, and yet I believe everything Peter says about the way a shepherd is supposed to be to a church, you also are to be to those who follow you. Let's pause for a moment right now and start thinking. Who follows you? Forget titles. Those can be helpful and they can also be misleading. Somebody can have a title of leader and they're no leader at all. You may not have title of leader. People follow you. They hang on your words. They hang on your actions. They look at the trajectory of your life. And they seek to model themselves after you. Who follows you? If you're a spouse, you may have a spouse following you. If you have children, you have children following you. If you have grandchildren, you have grandchildren following you. If you're in business, you have customers, clients, employees following you. If you're in politics, you have your constituents who are following you. You have people who are following you. Make no mistake about it. And so everything that I'm going to say here, I want to expound what is said because it is important that we understand what a pastor is in the context of a church because that can be changed accidentally or even intentionally so that it becomes something God never intended it to be. And it's happened many, many, many times. So we do need to know exactly what Peter is saying to his immediate audience, but we also need to be aware this is a message for you. And you all have someone following you. And therefore, you are accountable to God for what kind of a leader you are. So let's begin with verse 1. It says, "...the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed." Um, So we have the New King James up there. They omit the word therefore. Most older manuscripts record the Greek word un, which is therefore. And the reason that's important is because that means it shows, obviously, it's connected to what went before. So what went before? Peter was discussing suffering as a consequence of following Jesus Christ. Suffering is a consequence of following Jesus Christ. So when he moves into this discussion in chapter 5, and remember, chapter uh, divisions and numbers were added in in the medieval, in the Middle Ages. Okay, These are not part of inspired scripture. Sometimes it messes it up. Sometimes Peter or Paul or whoever's speaking, is they're on the same train of thought, but then for um, convenience sake, to be honest. So we could reference things easily. We've thrown chapters and verses in. So this is actually following directly discussion of suffering. So when Peter is now speaking to leaders, when he's speaking to pastors, he's doing so saying, if you dare to be a leader, whether you meant to be a leader or not, you will suffer. So navigating suffering and being a leader in the midst of suffering is not a weird thing. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And to be quite honest, though though I would like to not have suffering, I'm sure you would agree with me, no suffering at all is actually a sign in the Bible that you're doing something wrong. If no one has a problem with what you're doing, you're doing something wrong. You're doing the status quo. You're just maintaining what already is. And God's not happy with what already is. Doesn't mean he's upset about everything that is. There's good in the world. God's grace preserves good in the world, but there's always evil. And evil has to be dealt with. And anyone who steps up to evil will face the consequences of those evil powers that be. So suffering is inevitable in leadership, and that's the context in which Peter begins. And he says, the elders who are among you, I who am a fellow elder, I'm one of you. Peter is speaking from experience. How important is experience to you? Would you like to learn a subject, a topic, dear to your heart from a person who's never been there? Never experienced it? Do you want to read a book on leadership by a man or woman who's never led? Just curious. I remember somebody gave me a book when I first got married. My wife was a single mom, so we got married and had an instant family, just add water. And they gave me a book, and it was on blended families. First thing I did was flip it over. I wasn't looking for where he went to school. What do you think I wanted to know? Do you have a blended family? The answer was no. Now, it doesn't mean that man had nothing to say. We can push back and, and in pride go, well, I can't learn from you if you're not exactly in my shoes. Well, with one of the beautiful things about God and His grace is He can speak through anyone. In Scripture, including a donkey. He can speak through anyone But sort of as a rule for me, especially as as life goes on and I get older and things get crazier, I'm less interested in theory and I'm more interested in people who have been there and done that. That you can tell me, I know what it feels like, Mike, to suffer. I know what it feels like to deal with a complicated family situation. And blended families are objectively far more complicated than non-blended families. That's a fact. Experience is vital to understanding. And so Peter builds a bridge to his fellow leaders by saying, I'm one of you. When I talk to you about leading and leading in the midst of suffering, I'm not doing so as an armchair quarterback. Right? Like people watching the finals and like, oh, why did Thompson do that? Oh, I can't believe it. You know, it was Curry. Why did he do that? And it's like, do you play? (laughs) It's it's, It's actually amazing if you've actually played basketball. It kind of makes sense. What doesn't make sense to me is if you've never played basketball in your life and you're critiquing Steph Curry on his last shot or something like that. It's amazing. We want people that have actually been there. And Peter says, I am one of you. I am somebody who not only knows what it's like to lead, but I'm somebody who knows what it's like to suffer. So the person you're learning from this morning, not only inspired by the Holy Spirit, which Christians have attested for thousands of years, and that this is not just a human book, although humans wrote it, but that the very breath of God, that's what Paul says in Timothy, Theopneustos, God breathed. Just as He breathed the breath of life into Adam and He became a living being, so Scripture says God is breathing life into you. Not only is it God breathed in Scripture and the Spirit moving through the Word, but we have the Word of Peter, a man too who has suffered and knows what it is like to lead from a place of suffering. He says he's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. When we're in seasons of suffering, practically, we end Peter's verse after the word sufferings. All I can see is my suffering. All I can see is darkness. I can't see a way out of this downward spiral that life has me going down. But we see that if we're in Christ, these sufferings become the sufferings of Christ. And if we follow Christ, we are promised we will be partakers of the glory. The glory that will be revealed. This connects back to chapter 4, verse 13, where Peter spoke of these very things. Everybody wants the glory. Very few want the suffering. Now, there might be ways in life to get worldly, temporary, earthly glory without suffering. There might be. There is no way to have eternal glory but through suffering. The way for every Christian, and there's only one way, the way of Jesus, is the path of suffering. Jesus said, if you seek to be my follower, my disciple, you must pick up your cross, die to yourself every day, and follow me. Pick up the instrument of death, the cross which was an abhorrent sign. We often wear crosses, not against that at all. But no one would have worn a cross in the first century cross was actually considered to be a profane word, not to be spoken in polite company. It was the most profane, horrible situation a human being could find themselves in. And if you were lucky enough to be a Roman citizen, you would never have to worry about that. Because it was a torturous, horrendous death reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. And yet that is the death that Christ died. The death of a slave and an insurrectionist who ironically was obedient to the point of death. No disobedience. And he was no insurrectionist, but he was the perfect fulfiller of the kingdom of God. He goes on in verse 2 to say, "...shepherd the flock of God which is among you." Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly; not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So the word shepherd is a verb, and it's a command. I command you to shepherd the flock. By using this, Peter is pointing back to the Old Testament. Now it's true, people in the first century were, you know, still would people would have been familiar with livestock and an agrarian culture. But that's not primarily what Peter is doing here. When Peter utilizes the metaphor of the shepherd, he's hearkening back to the story of Israel. And one of the dominant metaphors of God's relationship to Israel is that of a shepherd with His sheep. Over and over and over again, the Lord is said to be the shepherd of His people. We began this morning's service with the reading of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We see all throughout the Psalms this metaphor of the shepherd, we see in Jeremiah, we see in Isaiah, we see in Ezekiel, we see in Micah, this picture of the Lord as the shepherd of his people. And one of the interesting things, if you track the history of this metaphor, is it's almost always spoken, not just in positive terms, namely this is what kind of a shepherd God is, but also in contrast to evil shepherds, what wicked shepherds look like. Some point that this shepherd flock metaphor goes all the way back to the exodus, that it's there that God leads His people out of Egypt, sets them free from bondage as a shepherd leading His sheep. One of the interesting things, and most of you are probably familiar with this, if you know anything about ancient Egypt at all, you'll probably be familiar with the pharaohs. You're probably familiar with Tutankhamun uh, or some of the the famous sarcophagi where it's depicted in gold and, and the long beard and the scepters. And there's always a certain staff. It's the most common staff you'll see in hieroglyphics or sarcophagi or anything else. And it's the shepherd's crook. One of the ways that the Egyptian pharaohs would communicate themselves to the people is that we are shepherds of you. That we are here to protect you and provide for you. Give you direction. But what kind of shepherd... Was Pharaoh to the Israelites? Pharaoh was a wicked shepherd. He may have symbolically wielded a shepherd's crook in his hand, but he was no protector of the Israelites, he was no provider of the Israelites. Pharaoh was cruel to the Israelites. And so when God is saving His people out of Israel, He's also saying, I'm not only going to show you what a good shepherd is like, I'm going to contrast that with what evil, wicked shepherds look like. And as you read through the Scriptures, Ezekiel in particular, you'll see over and over again Yahweh, the Lord, angry about the fact there's people who are shepherds, they're leaders, and they are not protecting, they are not providing, and they are not rightly teaching the flock. One of the great signs of a curse of judgment is bad leaders on a culture. And that they will even, perhaps, not always, but perhaps sometimes people will even approve of bad leaders. They give them something that they want, but they're not good. But they'll approve of them anyway. This is the background to Jesus' famous statement in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, he's not just saying, hey guys, I'm a good leader. Yeah, you you should follow me, and this is a helpful metaphor. This is called an I am statement for a reason. Anyone who knows the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, knows that one of the chief ways God communicates his relationship to his people is the shepherd flock metaphor. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is another way of him saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very, very powerful statement. That's why a lot of people, they'll they'll read John or read the New Testament, Jesus will say things and you're like, whatever. But for some reason, the next verse, all the Jews want to kill him. And you're like, obviously, you know something I don't because that didn't seem like a big deal to me. I am who I am. That's what I say, you know. I'm just like, I am who I am. You know, whatever, whatever, you know? No, that's not what Jesus was doing. And they and they wanted to kill him for a reason. It's not that they misunderstood him in those instances. It's that they understood and rejected. That was the problem. So the shepherd of the flock of God ultimately is Jesus Christ and therefore those that are leaders in any capacity and know Jesus Christ are to lead in His name. He describes then further what kinds of things a leader should do and what should motivate them. He says you serve as overseers. You have oversight over the direction and health of a group of people. Some leaders don't want that. They might want to accomplish an objective, but they don't care about the health and oversight over those under their care. He says also, not by compulsion, but willingly. And that's kind of an interesting thing. How do you get forced into being a leader? How do you get forced? Well, we know that the people tried to force Jesus to be king. Actually says they came and tried to take him by force, but he resisted them. Which is weird, because you're like, wait a minute, don't you want everyone to know you're king? Why are you always telling people to be quiet and not tell them who you are? That seems weird. It doesn't seem like a good marketing plan, like hide, make sure no one knows who you are. <laughs> like, pretty sure that's the way you go out of business. So, yeah, you, you don't want to do that, Jesus. But he does that. They try to make him king, and he says no. Because he knows what their idea of a king is. And he refuses to follow their agenda and is not prepared to be identified as the Messiah King until he has reformed their idea of what it means to be a Messiah or to be a King. Sometimes we can be or forced simply by life circumstances. I think there actually are a lot of accidental leaders. People that never intended to be a leader. There's many people in business where, to be perfectly honest, and they, they wouldn't see it as an evil motive. The, the reason I kept moving up and climbing the ladder is so I wanted more money. That's actually the reason I'm a leader. The vocation came with leading, but I'm only doing it because I get a pay raise. That's what it's actually about. Honestly, most jobs I've had, secular job, I mean, that's, there were probably a few caring people. I think there were, but, but a lot. I mean, it's, it's looking out for number ones, looking for me. I, I can get this better for myself. And so what if as I go up and my salary goes up, more and more people's lives are affected by how I live my life? I don't care about that. I just care about the money. So in a sense, they're, they're kind of put into a position. They didn't really want, they just wanted something that came with it. But to be a leader in the pattern of Jesus means to accept everything that comes with it. And that's an awful lot. And it's sure a lot more than what the world defines as leadership. He says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. It's something that should be a conviction for you. I don't envy any leader who has no conviction for what they're leading people to do or where they're leading them to go. It can't be dishonest gain motivating them. One of the things that there's many problems with this motivation of dishonest gain, but one key one in the scriptures, one of the chief things that a shepherd is to do is teach people the word of God. It's one of the most important things they do is teach people the word of God. Well, if you're in it teaching the word of God for dishonest gain, what happens when nobody likes what you're saying? What if it's not popular? What if your livelihood is threatened if you keep saying the truth? Well, if you're in it for dishonest gain, it's quite easy. It's the same thing almost anyone would do in business. If you have a bad product nobody wants and you have a service nobody wants, what do you do? You don't have to be a genius. You change it. Am I right? You change it. Something. One of the problems with being a shepherd is you are not allowed to change what God has called you to do. If God calls a shepherd to teach the Word of God, they're not allowed to change it even if it threatens their livelihood, their well-being. There's a famous scene in church history, and it's great to watch it uh, on the big screen years ago, but um, Martin Luther, the famous reformer after whom Martin Luther King was named, Martin Luther, he came to see, he was a Catholic monk, in Europe in the 16th century. And he was plagued with guilt. He knew God was real. He's there and he's holy. But he's just angry all the time. He's got lots of rules and he's just ticked. He's that angry father you can never please. You know what I'm talking about? Just the angry father. Tons of rules. If you do good, you just don't get hit. And if you do bad, you get hit. I mean, there, but there's no upside. That's how he looked at God. And his abbot sent him away to study the New Testament, a priest that didn't know the Bible. Sent him away to learn the New Testament. When he read the New Testament, he saw a God of love and grace. Yes, there's rules, there's standards, all that, but God's heart, he didn't create people to fulfill the rules. That's not why he did that. The rules are for you. The boundaries are for you to show you where home is, to show you where abundant life is. To keep you from playing out in the street like neighbor kids who have no parental oversight. And he came to see that. But it was upending the institution of the church in Europe. And Martin Luther was summoned to what they call a diet of worms. And no, they weren't going to force him to eat a bunch of worms. It It was a trial at the German city of Worms. And he was commanded to recant what he said. And he said that unless you convince me from Scripture, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. The plot was hatched to kill Luther. A friend that God in his sovereignty preserved, Prince Frederick of Saxony, Staged his kidnapping, took him away to a castle, and hid him there to keep him from the assassination plot of the hierarchy of the church at Rome. If Luther were in it for dishonest gain, would he have said what he said that fateful day at the Diet of Worms? If you're in it for dishonest gain, you say, I recant, I recant. No, uh, forget that. What? This is going to get me killed? No, I'm I'm not going to teach that you're saved by grace and that God loves you and that believers should have the Bible to read for themselves. No, I I recant, I recant, I recant. But the conviction is that a shepherd must follow the great shepherd. And that there is no room for change or compromise when it comes to the word and will of God of God. Leadership must be born out of a desire to follow the Good Shepherd. Verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Peter is sharing here a hard-learned lesson from his three years of apprenticeship and following of Jesus during his earthly ministry. This is recorded in several of the Gospels, but I have one for you. Matthew 20:24 20, through 28 We read this story. And when the ten heard it, that's ten of the disciples, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." I think what Jesus pointed out is what's true in our world today. Most people in leadership use their leadership to their advantage. It's what it's for. They, they might help you because of course maybe if they don't help you they don't get some of your, your power or your vote or whatever it is. But make no mistake, that's not the same thing as belief and conviction. That that's what motivates them is, is our well-being, your well-being, other people's well-being. He said the way to the top in the pattern of Jesus is the way down. Some have called it the upside-down kingdom because it's just like you don't succeed this way. You don't walk in there and like, oh, I'm going to serve everybody, you know? You want to try out for a team? You don't go in there and say, oh, hey, I'll sit on the bench. You, you, go, you, know, you go play. You know, It's like, no, I'm going to go out there. If it's football, I'm going to hit that wide receiver as hard as I can and make him wish he never stepped foot on the field. I'm going to show them what I've got. I'm going to step to the top. Jesus says the way to be great, the way to be a leader, is to humble yourself and to be a servant. And that is the way that God's people are to lead. This kind of upside-down leadership, let's call it, changes everything changes marriage. A lot of people, modern people, will read Scripture and they'll read Ephesians 5, husbands and wives, and the husband's a leader, oh that's kind of archaic and patriarchal and aggressive and all that. Part of the problem is, is we're reading our experience onto God's Word rather than letting God's Word read us. The main problem I find personally is not the text that says a husband is the leader of his wife. The main problem is what leadership patterns we've learned, which are not godly, where leaders use their leadership to their own advantage and the neglect of others, and then read that onto the text and you go, well, oh, I don't want that. Understandably. But if you read Jesus' upside-down definition of leadership, the husband leads by giving himself up and dying and washing her feet? Wait a minute. I withdraw my application. I I don't think I want to be the leader in the marriage anymore. It's only when we redefine leadership in the pattern of Jesus that all these other positions of leadership and people's experience and people have been burned all across the board. All across the board in leadership. Talk to non-Christian women who were married and abused and then they became Christians later after being divorced, and then when they read texts about submitting your husband, understandably, it's a scary thing. Because they go, well, that sounds bad because this is what leadership looked like. And I can't have that. And the answer is that Jesus doesn't want that either. The answer, biblically, is that that actually couldn't be further from the truth of what a true leader is. Honestly, like my my sinful nature that might want to use that that position of, of being husband to my own advantage is just killed by the gospel. It's just killed. Because my leadership is I'm accountable to Jesus to make sure I'm girding myself with a towel and trying to wash my wife's feet to give up my dreams and hopes and everything else so that she can live, to make her come to life, to dress her up with my words so that she doesn't just have to adorn herself outwardly with clothes, but through my own lifting up and exalting and language that she is being beautified rather than put down. This pattern of leadership changes everything. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Of course, you probably all know that in the athletic games, the Olympic games back in the first century in ancient Greece, the winner would receive a wreath made out of a plant. And so it was one of those things where you would win it, it was a sign of honor, it was a sign of prestige. Probably came with all kinds of social benefits. People would welcome you and throw parties for you and do favors for you, and you could even move up the ladder socially if you wore that wreath. But because that wreath was a plan, it would always wither and die. The, The glory of it would fade. So it is with many of our trophies. Maybe you were on the wrestling team in high school and you won all state, you know, or football or basketball or whatever and and it has and it had a lot of glory and then over time it's like, oh, it's a little dusty," you know, or or the, you know, the little arm with the ball broke off and or or that league doesn't exist anymore. It was like ncaaaaa 7 you know, and like it was cool to those in NCAAA7, but everyone else knows You basically didn't really play. Um, So it's, it's like the glory fades. So what Peter is saying, when the chief shepherd, so the true shepherd of the church is Jesus, he's the head pastor of every church, at least he ought to be, and when he appears, you get a crown of glory, but one that doesn't fade. This points to the futility of all other rewards we're working for right now. If you're working for money, you can lose it. Just ask around. If you're working for people's opinion of you, oh my gosh, I feel really bad. That can change quicker than the wind. People's opinions of you, everything else. Again, it's not that they don't have any value or we wouldn't chase them, would we? But like the reef handed to the winners of these athletic events, so too these things fade. So when we lead, we want to do so not for anything anyone can give us. But for what Jesus alone gives us. And the beauty of that is not only does it last forever, it cannot be taken away. No circumstance of life can rob me of that which the chief shepherd bestows upon me. And lastly, verse five Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace. The humble. So here, probably because Peter might be concerned that after, you know, this long list of qualifications for leader, lest those who are not in leadership go, oh, good, you have to do all that, and I don't have to do anything. He commends the younger people, which could be younger in age. It can also be uh, in the sense of a neophyte, somebody who's younger in the faith, newer in the Christian community. And they are to submit to the elders that you do have to respect the authority that God has put over you. That that is what God has called you to do because try leading people who don't want to be led and see how that goes. At the end of the day, you can read as many books as you want and try to you know, I don't know read books on intrinsic motivation and reward and all that and psychology and everything else. But mysteriously, at the end of the day, if a human being does not want to follow you, they're not going to follow you. And there's nothing you can do. And the living proof for this is none less than Jesus himself. Look, if you feel bad because you're a leader and somebody doesn't want to follow you, people didn't want to follow Jesus. I mean, at first they did, right? There were crowds. Watch which direction his career went. He started off with a megachurch, like day one megachurch. Biggest success, success story if he was here in America, in American church history. Oh my gosh, day one, thousands, amazing. And over time, as he continued to tell them who he was, what his vision for the kingdom of God was, and what the cost of following was, the crowd thinned down to 12 and to 3 and to Jesus alone on a cross. If you feel bad because you're in a season where God's called you to be a leader but people aren't following, again, we have to look to the great shepherd. And sure, maybe there's something wrong with us. It's always good to do inventory of ourselves. We're not passing it off. Well, well, it's just because I follow Jesus and I don't have any problems. I'm sure we all do. But having done that, acknowledge that even if you do everything right, there'll be times and seasons when people do not want to follow you and there's nothing you can do. Because you're not a pharaoh called to beat anyone into submission. We lead by love, not by force. I want to end this morning's message by taking some of the things we've learned and and just share five lessons on leadership in the way of Jesus. Five lessons in the way of leadership and the pattern of Jesus. Number one, you can't be a good leader until you become a good follower. That's the number one rule. You can't be a good leader until you become a good follower. So the obvious question is who are you following today? Who are you following? If you're following someone you're not meant to follow, if you're following a leader who's a bad leader, maybe they're successful in the eyes of the world, but they're not a good person. Morally corrupt. Spiritually bankrupt, but maybe they do one thing really good, very skilled in a certain area. Are you following that person? A lot of people are. They're following people because they see one avenue of their life that looks good, even though all the others are corrupt. But as Jesus said, it's out of the heart. The mouth speaks and the body acts. There's ultimately one river of the heart, not many. You might be lucky to get some fresh water over here. Well, thank God for that, but that doesn't mean it's not poisoned elsewhere. Who are you following? Who do you model your life after? What it is to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good boss. Whatever it might be, what's the paradigm for you? It might be conscious. You actually have somebody, a hero, an idol, whatever. It might be unconscious. Somebody simply trained you in life. You simply saw it. It was repeated. Especially if you were a child, because children just pick up whatever they see. Not a lot of critical thinking going on in small children. That's not how their brains work. They simply copy what they hear and what they see. And that goes with them, potentially, the rest of their lives. So if it's not easy for you to answer that question, who are you following, then take some time this week and think a little bit deeper. Whose life am I living out? Who am I following? I would suggest that the one you are meant to follow is Jesus. That you are to look to Him as your your CEO, your president, your spout, whatever it is, and be like, He's the model. He's the archetype. He's the one I want to follow. I want to be just like Him. I want to sound like Him. I want to look like Him. I want to have a heart like Him. And whatever changes i got to make in my life, whether they're easy or hard, and I guarantee you some will be very hard and very costly, but that's what I want to be. It's not just what I want to have and where I want to go. It's who I want to be. So who are you following? You can't be a good leader until you become a good follower. Number two, you can't be a good leader without ever failing. Now with Jesus, there is an exception. Jesus is the one leader who never failed. Every other leader has failed, including the man writing these words. The man writing these words to us this morning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the man who denied Jesus three times. He's the man who constantly misunderstood Jesus, didn't know what in the heck he was talking about. He was so arrogant that he would actually pull Jesus aside and be like, Psh, what are you doing? That's, no, that's not what you mean. No, let, me, let me tell you. Let me counsel you, you know, eternal son of God. Actually rebuked and corrected Jesus. And then in Jesus' hour of need, he denies him. You know what's interesting about this? This failure? Jesus meets, after his resurrection, meets Peter right at his point of failure redeems him and makes him a leader. If you remember, Jesus is making breakfast for his disciples after his resurrection. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Second time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Tend my lambs ask him a third time Peter son of Jonah do you love me yes Lord you know that I love you feed my lambs Jesus is making Peter a pastor by redeeming him from his failure if somebody came to me and said oh I'm applying for this leadership position and oh well How'd you do at your last position? Well, I constantly misunderstood my boss over and over, corrected them publicly in, in front of people. And then uh, when the cops came and tried to arrest my boss and I, and I knew he was innocent, I denied I knew him. <laughs> oh, welcome aboard, glad to have you. No, it's like, okay, Peter, nice to meet you. Don't call us, we'll call you. That's how that interview would have gone down for me. Jesus meets Peter in his failure and says, Peter, I'm going to extend you grace because I want gracious leaders. Not looking for perfect people, but I am looking for people who are willing to confess, repent, and follow me. And if they'll do that, I'll give them all the grace they need to cover their mistakes. Number three, you can't be a good leader if your primary goal is to please people. Galatians 1.10, the Apostle Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? It's a question you should ask yourself. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Look, if, if you can please people and please God, by all means, please do. It's not a bad thing to want to make people happy, give them what they want, whatever. It's not necessarily wrong. It is wrong if you put people, pleasing people, above pleasing God. Because those two things most certainly at times will not intersect. And they will at times contradict. I remember a famous statement by Abraham Lincoln. Who led the, kind of shepherded the country through what I would call pretty horrendous political time in this country. And he said, you can please all the people some of the time. You can even please some of the people all the time. But you cannot please all the people all the time. It's not possible. He said, if I were to stop and answer every letter of criticism that came to me, I may as well resign my office and do nothing else. But he had to be able to put that away and do what he believed to be right. So if we are to be good leaders, it's okay to want to please people, but they cannot be number one. We must want to please God. Number four, a good leader has to have good motivations. We already saw this in verse 2. What is motivating you to do what you do? Reevaluate it. It could be wicked motives for some of us. could be motives that they're not wicked, but they're not particularly holy. They're not eternal. They're not high and lofty ideals. They're just whatever. Status quo. Everybody else is doing it. A good leader has to have good motivations. What are those for you? And lastly, a good leader perseveres even in the face of suffering. As I said, we're calling the whole series on 1 Peter courage under fire because that is the context. God's people under attack, under assault. That's the context of 1 Peter 5, 1-5. In the midst of suffering, what kind of leader will you be? And a good leader perseveres even in the face of suffering. Some people have the naive, dreamlike, I don't know, Disney notion or something that a good leader would never face suffering. That the proof of success is not having hardship. That's a fairy tale. All the great leaders I know both in my life and in Scripture, also went through hell. They went through hell. If you're going through a difficult season right now, know that this doesn't disqualify you from your role as a leader. How you respond to it shows whether you're a leader or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for the opportunity to be gathered here together. Lord, I know I, I can take it for granted that we're able to be here, that we have a place to meet, that we're free to meet, that we don't have to worry at this time in history of, of being arrested, thrown in jail, beaten, whatever it is. For the first Christians, that was not the case. They did what we are doing at the cost of their lives. There's believers in the world Sri Lanka, India, the Middle East who risk their lives if they attend a gathering like this. Lord, there's real suffering in the world. And I thank you that the gospel of your son deals with real suffering in the world. I thank You, Jesus, that You not only came into our world and into our humanity and into our suffering, but You did so in order to be the One greater than Moses who could lead us out. And so I just pray this morning for all of us who are leaders in any capacity at all. Somebody, sometime, somewhere looks to us. I pray this morning that we would make the decision to follow Jesus as our Good Shepherd. That we would allow Your loving hand and outstretched arm to teach us what it means in this season to be men and women who lead in the pattern of Jesus. I pray this now in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.